beginning preachers often don't really plan. In fact, they think that structure is, they have a low view of structure because it's, because it's constructed and they, are, they want the spirit. They have this false assumption that structure and the spirit do not go together. Of course, anybody who thinks that way has never actually read the Bible, I think, you know, and, and seen that God is by nature structural. He, he creates, he structures, he, he's, the, he's the one who made cre- all of creation. Um, he constructed it. Hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast, episode 298. I'm your host, Mike Neglia. Our guest for this week's show, man, I just love talking with retired seminary professors. I've had a few conversations like this and uh, just the sharpness of mind and the breadth of experience and the, the, the coaching didactic teaching ability uh, in these guys is unparalleled. So my latest retired professor that I spoke to is Dr. John Kessler. I first became aware of him through an earlier episode of this show, I spoke with Pastor Joe Thorne, and he told me that the best book on preaching that he ever read was called Folly, Grace, and Power by Professor John Kessler. So I went out and got it. I've quoted it before. I I love the book, and I was actually really excited to get a chance to arrange an interview with him a few years later on this show. And so this conversation did not disappoint. Uh, We speak about the role of prayer in the preparation of not just the the sermon, but the, the preacher. We also speak about the need for churches to create space for other preachers and teachers in the church beyond just the lead pastor on Sunday morning and speak about some opportunities that might be missed by not making room for emerging voices or even older and more experienced voices within the church. And also at the beginning have a diversion conversation about ecclesiology, the Jesus movement, and some of the history of Calvary Chapel. It's a great conversation. I know you're going to like it. Well, I'm going to see some of you in Indianapolis, Indiana, pretty soon, October 27th and 28th. That's coming up sooner than later. And I don't want anyone to think that this is a pastor's conference. This is not limited to those who are in the pastoral ministry already. And I'm going to let Michaela Hildebrand invite you. She was one of our guests in Southern California at our most recent training event. And she has some words that might inspire some more of you to make the trip to the Midwest, to come out to Indianapolis. And I would love to see you there. After Michaela, the interview with John is going to begin automatically. Catch you later. Hey everyone, my name is Michaela and I'm from Victory Cabaret Chapel in Venice, California. And I wanted to invite you to the Expositors Collective Conference. It's two days jam-packed with so much wisdom for teaching the Bible effectively. And from practical hands-on advice to theological approaches to studying the Bible, you will be so inspired and encouraged on what can seem like a very daunting thing. 
And it doesn't matter if you're teaching for two people or 200 or 2000, and you don't have to be a pastor to attend. Deep expositional Bible teaching is so critical, both in personal reading and in the church. And especially for you ladies, the need for deep Bible teaching is so, so needed. So don't miss it. I just went to the one in Temecula, California. It was awesome. So the next one is in Indianapolis, Indiana on October 27th and 28th. So register at expositorscollective.com. Well, hey, welcome to the Expositors Collective Podcast. Uh, I'm really excited to be speaking with Dr. John Kessler. Good morning and welcome to the show. Thanks, Mike. Great to be with you. Hey, so I have just like really benefited from uh, an earlier book that you wrote, uh, Folly, Grace and Power, The Mysterious Act of Preaching. just want to say thank you for your contribution to, uh, to my life through writing that book. And I know that we're going to talk about prayer and other things, but thank you just so much for your, your faithfulness and serving so many. Thank you. That was a fun book for me. I, I really enjoyed writing it and I'm happy that people are still reading it. Well, yeah. And um, I would love to hear about like the beginning of your like preaching, preaching journey. Um, uh, so, John, do you remember the first time you ever preached a sermon or taught a Bible study in public? I don't remember the first sermon I preached. I do remember the first time I ever stood before a group and talked about Christ. It was uh, back in the 70s, back in the days of the Jesus movement. And I was going to a coffee house and they asked me to give my testimony. And uh, I was just in my late teens and I wrote it all down by hand on a loose leaf paper, stood up in front of this some tiny little group of people put the paper right in front of my face, you know, and I'm sure it was terrible, but there was something really uh, rewarding about it. And I, and as soon as I was done, I thought, uh, I want to do that again. And that was kind of the first inkling that I got of being drawn into a, a, a preaching ministry. And in fact, I, I very early on in my Christian experience, I decided that uh, I, I felt like I wanted to be a preacher. The, the funny thing was, at the time, I wasn't really going to church. I was going to that coffee house pretty regular, but I, at the very beginning, I didn't really feel like I wanted to make church a part of my life because it seemed so tedious to me, and uh, took took a little while. And, and actually, one of the one of the turning points was th this sense, you know, from the Lord, this question that I felt uh, the Lord raised f for me was like, well, if you want to preach, who are you going to preach to? Like, where, where are you going to find those people if you don't go to church? Mm. So, um, at the coffee house, Lord. Well, and that's actually, that's where I started to preach. I, I yeah. first started to preach on Friday nights to this uh, small group of people uh, terribly. I'm sure it was awful. And in fact, you know, we just, the group, the, the number of people just kept shrinking, you know, fewer and fewer people. <laughs> but but I yeah. just felt really drawn to it and uh, began to first sort of teach myself how to study. And then I didn't really get formal training until I went to seminary some years after that. But uh, that's, that's how I started. Wow. Yeah, I... I know that you've ended up in Chicago, um, but what was this in Chicago? 
This was in the Detroit area. I grew up in the Detroit area. Oh, is that right? Area. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. So the suburban Detroit area. Yeah. Well, my own like church heritage, I'm part of the Calvary Chapel or Calvary Global Network, which oh, yeah. has, you know, it's, it's roots in the, the Jesus people uh, Absolutely. movement. And yeah, I, I know that it's certainly not a, a monolithic movement. And I suppose the, the version of it that I heard so much growing up was that essentially Jesus people just turned straight into Calvary Chapel. And that's not, that's not as, <laughs> no. it, it was far broader. And there was like several, I guess, wings and categories, some of which had healthy ecclesiology, some of which didn't. And right. maybe were you, were you part of one that maybe didn't have the most robust ecclesiology? Well, the church, the, the, the coffee house was sponsored by a church that, that was, you know, was a basically a, a typical church. You know, in fact, the, when they, one of the, the pastor, one of the pastors who he just had just started there, the coffee house had already been existing, and and he came in and basically preached this sort of barn burning sermon to us about like you you people need to go to church, and uh, that that was uh, that was really kind of the turning point for me because up up to that point I my my attendance had been very sparse, and of course I grew up in a non church home. We did, we I did not. Grow up going to church. My first encounters with Christian people were not real positive. And so my whole sense of what church was was very negative. And so when he came in there and he basically just use the scripture to say, you know, Jesus loves the church. You need to, it needs to be more important to you. And that was kind of a wake up call for me. And so the church had a, you know, a sound ecclesiology in that sense for, for what ecclesiology was in the 1970s. You know, it's, it's, the whole thing has changed much since then. But I would say in the coffee house, a lot of us, we sort of treated the coffee house like our church because that's where we we heard the word and we worshiped together and that was where our connections were and and I suppose you know in its way some people would say well why why isn't that why isn't that a church and I think the answer would have been because the the congregation that sponsored it didn't consider it to be that so I don't know if that answers your question but. well sure yeah yeah and and you know. Martin Luther would say that, that there's there's the word and sacraments and that the you know even Calvin would add like church discipline that likely wasn't taking yeah. place in the the coffee shop environment. Right. Well, that the the word was and yeah. uh, we did not do we did not observe the Lord's supper in the coffee house. I I don't really think it was a matter of conviction. I don't I don't think it was a theologically driven decision. I just think we didn't do it. You know, we were into music and preaching, which was really true of a lot of people who, a lot of Christians who sort of came out of that Jesus movement. In fact, I, I think that's that's what characterized it was music and the word. And so we we got together around the word and we sang songs together and that was a great experience for us. And, and really, it was years later, really only after I started to attend seminary, I think that I began to think about the question of what makes a church a church. And, and certainly when I began to teach, you know, I, I taught pastoral studies at Moody Bible Institute, and I had to think even more deeply about it. But I'd say a lot of Christians don't really think along those lines. They're not thinking ecclesiologically. They're, they are thinking experientially, and they're thinking about 
Christ. They're thinking about their Christian experience. But the questions don't always get much uh, bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're about, what, a few minutes in? We're already on a huge tangent. <laughs> so, yeah. so about preaching and then quickly j- drive into ecclesiology. But certainly they're, they're connected. Uh, so you, you mentioned that your, your first testimony was uh, an exciting opportunity, but, you know, that you had your, your notes in, in front of your face the whole time. And that's maybe not the best way to communicate. <laughs> and then you got to kind of teach or preach more on Fridays to a, a dwindling and a shrinking body over, over the years. Like, how have you grown as a teacher and preacher? Like, what are the sort of things I can think of one obvious thing that you stopped doing, um, but what are some other like bad habits that you've stopped doing in, in your years as a preacher? <laughs> well, you know, that's probably a question that the audience would have to answer better. If, if there was anybody who had been through that with me, I, you know, I would say, I, I can only tell you the things that became more important to me over the years. And two, two in particular stand out. One is the importance of structure. My sermons are very constructed. And, and I think a lot about, and, and I'm, I should preface that and say, you know, the uh, careful exegesis is taken for granted. I, 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 do all of that work. I, that I think I, I always, that was always important to me this, to study. But um, I think what I realized over a number of years is that most preachers don't pay a whole lot of t- attention to the way they organize their thoughts when they're preaching. It's kind, it's kind of like, I have the first thought, and I have the next thought, and I have the next thought, and I have the next thought, and, and then we just sort of put that down. And it's at least what I found when I was teaching preaching is that beginning preachers often don't really plan. They, in fact, they think that structure is, they have a low view of structure because it's, because it's constructed and they are, they want the spirit. They have this false assumption that structure and the spirit do not go together. Of course, anybody who thinks that way has never actually read the Bible, I think, you know, and, and seen that God is by nature structural. He, he creates, he structures, he, He's the he's the one who made cre- all of creation. He constructed it. So so st- structure. You know, working on my structure. Where am I going with the sermon? And why am I going that way? How am I organizing my thoughts? And then related to that, uh, the other area is I have really grown in my sense of the importance of seeing the passage through the eyes of the listener. And that, I think, is sort of the besetting sin of particularly most young preachers, and and, and almost all the preachers (laughs) that I hear, that most preachers are looking at the text through their eyes. They're looking at it through the lens of what they want the audience to be instead of listening to the text on the audience's behalf. And the, the way I've tend to think about this as the it's the priestly function of preaching that my role isn't just to sort of throw biblical truths at the audience my function as a preacher is to listen to the text on behalf of the audience and ask the questions that the tech that the audience ask the questions of the text that the audience would ask and particularly the questions that they would be afraid to ask and then to speak that 
to the audience, to, to talk to them in a compassionate way, because that's, that's the other thing I, that I think I, I see in my own preaching and, you know, over the years have tried to, is, is that we, many of us, I think, gravitate toward the sort of prophetic model, you know, which is like uh, seven woes and 10 denunciations. And there's this negative assumption that many preachers have about the people who they're preaching to. And I really think that it's far more biblical and healthier if the preacher begins with the assumption that they are the advocate. I am I'm an advocate for my listener. And my my default assumption is the listener wants to be there. They want to know more about Christ and they want to be more like Christ. So I think that's a healthier place to start. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's mighty. Yeah, so maybe uh, let me know if I'm if I'm hearing you correctly. So, like a prophetic type of preaching, it's almost like you're coming against the right. people, it's or maybe serial. against the people's sins. Yes. And then a, a priestly form of preaching is is I, I'm I'm for you, and I, I imagine that you probably hate your sin just as much just as much as I do. And let's let's see what we could do about this together. Yes. And when I'm talking about the prophetic model, I'm not really talking about a biblical prophetic model, because actually, if you look at the biblical prophets, they were for the people, (laughs) you know, for the most part there, with maybe the exception of uh, Jonah, but, but, you know, Jeremiah's weeping, you, you see this tremendous sense of grief that they have when they're put in a position where they where they are adversarial to their audience. And I think that if you're preaching from this priestly model, there are times when you are in an adversarial mode, you know, when the truth of the text goes against what you see happening in the life of the church. That is an uncomfortable place to preach from, and it ought to be uncomfortable. And and you, you really have to preach from that uh, perspective with a sense of sympathy and interest. I, I think that Many of us, particularly those of us who are sort of pastoral ministry is our career. It's not, it is our calling, but honestly, we approach it with all of the expectation that everybody has with their own career. You know, they, they want to see things, they want to see things improve. They want to step up. They, they, they want to see things get better so that there is a, there is a selfish perspective that infects most preachers. There's a self-interest that shapes the way they look at the audience and the way they speak to the audience. And you really have to think your way through that. I think, you, and I really think you need the help of the Holy Spirit to think about it differently. Uh, so that if you, when you, 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 you detect this sort of underlying note of um, anger or disappointment or, or bitterness toward the people that they are, the preacher is addressing. And so this kind of selfishness or, or even this frustration, do, do you kind of link it that in some preacher's mind, it's like, hey, listen, I want, I want to have a successful church 
and you are what's keeping me from having a successful church. Yes, totally. And I, I mean, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, you know, there were there were many Sundays when I stood before the congregation when I was pastoring, and I and, and I would say to the Lord, Lord, give me something to work with here. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm looking out over the congregation. I say, you know, this this vision I have of the kind of church that you know that I'm that I'm supposed to be serving, and honestly, in, which interpreted really means which I'm worthy of. You know, that this church doesn't deserve somebody like me, particularly somebody who can preach like me, you know. So, so, yeah, I think it's, it's ambition that we really spiritualize. And it's a, it's a painful, it's, it's a painful reality to, to come to grips with it because it, you, I think, what I find is there are a few things in the world that I love as much as preaching, and there are a few things that bring out, the worst in me like preaching does because because there's so much of there is so much of me involved in it yeah what do you mean that preaching brings the the worst out of you oh i mean pride ambition self-centeredness you know when i'm done you know i'm looking around and i'm I'm looking for praise. I'm looking for people to come up and say, "Oh, you are awesome. You are the you are the best preacher I've ever heard. You you are you know, you 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 you. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. that's what I'm looking yeah. for. And and how can a a preacher maybe, maybe you know, we're we're listened to by by a lot of preachers. Maybe some of them are being like, "Man, this guy John, he sounds really bad." <laughs> I, preaching bring preaching brings the best out of me. But but here he's saying that it brings the, the worst out of him. How like con- convince us? What are some like yeah. some diagnoses questions that we could be asking ourselves that that could find out that it's not just you who are bad, but we are are feeling that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think if I, honestly, I think if a if you're reacting that way, it just means you're not self-aware. Mm-hmm. It, it really means that you don't know your own heart. Anybody. I believe anybody who has preached for a significant length of time recognizes all of the stuff that rises up within our own hearts. You cannot stand before people and tell them what to do and have it not appeal to your worst side. I mean, I, it, it is, uh, I used to tell, and I, I think my, actually, I think my students when I taught preaching, maybe would react the way that you you did because I, because I used to say to them, you know, it's not an accident that my calling is one where I get to do all the talking. You know, I, I get to stand up in front of the congregation. I get to do all the talking and it's in the cultural context. You know, I, I preached in, they didn't interrupt, you know, you know, I, you didn't say anything until I was done. There's a personality type that's drawn to that. And you know, it's, it's, I think this is typical of the way that God works. You can, you see it all through the scriptures that our great strengths are also our great weaknesses that Paul tells us what, what kind of, what kind of person does God draw into the ministry of proclamation? It's not the best person. It's the fool. It's, it's, it's not the person who has no flaws that that person does exist. His name is Jesus. And the others, you know, any others who meet that criterion, they're all dead. You know, they're all in the presence of the Lord. Their sanctification has been complete. (laughs) Right. (laughs) 
Yeah. So I don't know. Maybe I, you know, I don't, I don't want to overestimate. Yeah, I, I don't want to overstate it and make it seem like, oh yeah, I was a monster. You know, I, I mean, sure, I, sure, yeah. Know, I mean, I had the same ambitions that that most preachers do. You know, I, I wanted to, I wanted to serve the Lord. I wanted to make a difference, but I did want to be the best. I, you know, I wanted to be a Spurgeon. I wanted to be, uh, you know, one of the great preachers of the age. And I wasn't, and it bothered me. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah, just so you know, I am always ready to believe the worst about me, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be kind of like the imagined yeah, yeah, interlocutor, right, you know, right. um, like on, on behalf of, of the listeners. So, you know, uh, uh, yeah. I got I got a long list of issues that I'm that I'm working at, and um, uh, a, a, an exaggerated view of myself is not on yeah. that list. Um, so yeah, I'm I'm ready to to listen to those those rebukes, and then also too as you know, we've all heard the stats, you know, about like how public speaking is such a a high fear for so many of the population, yes. and. We don't have that. <laughs> like we are a bunch of weirdos. Like Bible teachers, preachers, we're weird. There's something about us that's different. Yeah, it ought to tell you something though that that you don't fall into the norm there. You know that that on the one you know on the one hand, it, obviously, it, it, I think it's one of the marks of calling. Although Paul says that when he goes to the Corinthians, he's full of fear and trembling. He he doesn't get over whatever the, whatever that element of fear is. But I, I think. If, if I love to speak in front of people, honestly, I think it means that there is some part of me that by default likes the attention. I, I, I'm drawn to it. Uh, I like to be at the center of things. And God often often uses that sort of person, but he also he also has to uh, discipline them through their lives. It is no accident that when you look particularly at the recent history of the church that you know that these these great these big examples of pastors who have you know who have fallen are you know they're 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 pulpiteers they're they're platform people their whole ministry is built around that so i don't you know i i really do think that it is a default temptation for anybody who has a, a public ministry and it, with whom it resonates and uh, you i think you just have to keep your eyes open and and god has a wonderful way of humbling us too. You know, he really knows how to do that. So it's not like we have to go through this and uh, without any help. God, that's much, that's a significant part of the work that God does is to uh, keep our hearts in line and to remind us who really is doing the speaking. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a unique makeup that we have, which offers unique opportunities for, for service, but then also has an accompanying potential shadow side. Right. And that's true. Of, that is true of every person and every calling that they're engaged mm. in. I mean, mm. it's just uh, the reality of the sinful nature. And, and let me say one other thing, because this is I, this is one of the things that I talk about in Folly, Grace, and Power is, uh, you know, there's, there's this prayer that you often hear preachers pray at the beginning of sermons where they say, you know, oh, Lord, uh, may I disappear and nothing of me remain and may people forget, you know, anything that comes from me. And, and I, what I say in the book is that, uh, that 
number one, I, I think the prayer is vain because experience shows that it, you don't really need a miracle for people to forget what the preacher says. It happens every time somebody preaches. But more fundamentally, I think that that prayer reflects a misunderstanding of the whole nature of preaching, that uh, Phillips Brooks' famous definition of preaching is truth through personality, that, that the person that I am is part of the container that God uses to convey this truth. It is a kind of incarnation. And so that that whatever that personal dimension is, even with its weakness, is that's part of, you know, God's, uh, the way God has designed me and called me. And therefore, he, he knows he's working with somebody who has weaknesses and shortcomings, and he works through that. Yeah. Yeah, we had earlier on this um, podcast, we had an earlier conversation with uh, Scott Erickson, and we gave kind of a, a long type of, a long chunk of our episode was about that particular prayer, you know, Oh Lord, yeah, let, yeah. let me fade away. <laughs> and yeah, we, yeah. we agree. It's actually, that's a silly thing to pray. If you're going to pray it at all, you should pray it as you're preparing, uh, but not in public. Right. And then maybe it's not even something to be prayed at all that it should be essentially yeah. like, yeah, like you formed me in my mother's womb. You have been dealing gracious with me my whole life. You have called me to yourself. You've made me with a collection of gifts help those to be on display in a way that is not right. making me the hero, but making me a, a character. Like I want to be John the Baptist finger pointing people towards Christ. Well, and that, you know, that's the other, that's the other dimension of it is that uh, many preachers, you know, we are looking at somebody else that we admire that we want. That's what we want to be. We, so we preach like that person. Sometimes we even adopt their, their style, their gestures, uh, which it's understandable, particularly when you're beginning. I think most art forms, you begin with imitation. You you look mm -hmm. at the masters and then you sort of pick up. But in time, you, you really want to try to develop your own voice. And uh, so, I, you know, I just think it's it's important to bear that in mind that, that, that part of the ministry is for me to give this sort of angle of vision about the word a perspective that no other person can give because there's something unique about the, the place where I'm looking at it. I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, some secret truth that's, I'm talking about a perspective from my own experience, my own personality, l looking at the word. George MacDonald has this sermon, uh, one of his sermons, The New Name, where he, he, ta he, he talks about this and says that every Christian has a view of Jesus that is not quite the same as any other person because their experience is not quite like any other person. And I think that's what comes out yeah. in preaching. Yeah. And doesn't it say in, in Ephesians too, like Paul prays that like that together with all the saints, we'd grasp the height and depth, you know, yeah. that it's something that, that yeah. yeah, together we're going to, to grasp this. And I hadn't, I hadn't heard that line from George McDonald, but I want to go check that out. <laughs> I like that type of thing. Yeah, it's called the new. It's called the new name. It's uh, of course McDonald's is a very interesting 
creature to read and uh, very dense. And, and so uh, there, even in that particular sermon, you know, there's, there's a lot that you wade through. But this, this idea that he has that, and, and he really locates it in heaven. He's, he's preaching from the passage in Revelation, that this idea that when we're complete, that's, that's part of what the project is, is that for God, through our redemptive experience, to give us a view of himself through Christ that is unique, that is distinctive, not quite like anybody else, that we would know him and he would know us in a, in a way that is not true of anyone else. Yeah. Let's, yeah. Well, so, yeah, John, you've like taught pastoral ministry and, and included in that has been, has been preaching, right? For right. Mm-hmm. quite a number of years. Yeah. 25 years. What are the trends that you've noticed as you've been dealing with, you know, students at, at Moody Bible Institute? Like, I don't know, let's say 20, 25 years ago, was there a certain bent or certain proclivities that you're not seeing anymore in younger or newer, like up and coming preachers? Well, I think I think there's we've been on a trajectory for a couple of decades that I, I would I wouldn't say that there's like a radical difference today from what I saw when I started, uh, which was now over 25 years ago. I've been retired for about three years. This trajectory toward personality up uh, it's ironic I was just talking about the value of personality I'm now I'm, I'm using it in a little a different a little different <laughs> sense here where yeah. uh, you know what in in its full form it became the preacher as a brand you know the branded preacher where the emphasis was more on the personality of the preacher rather than the personality as being a lens through which the word was magnified so that a movement away from the text i think uh more towards style um and in fact that's i think you know by the time i was finishing up my career, that that was one of the things that really concerned me. There was more and more emphasis on style, more and more emphasis on narrative style, which, you know, I think narrative preaching is a great mode. I love to do narrative preaching, but it was, it was really becoming almost like a a performance, performance art, storytelling, um, not really drawing attention to the text and uh that w- that was concerning to me i think um the ideal of large large audiences you know rather than the normative experience of even i would say through the whole history of the church the normative experience has not been large it's been smaller congregations you know more personal preaching to people you'd know um i i I think really less and less biblical foundation on the part of the people who are going in for training was certainly true because, you know, if you think about the way this, this sort of uh, goes back to what we were talking about ecclesiology earlier, if you look at the platforms, if you look at the spaces in the church where the word is being presented, they are, they are so shrunk today compared to what they were, at least when I, when I began to attend church, you know, basically it's one shot, it's one sermon, on Sunday, 
And that's that's pretty much it. So all those other avenues where you were hearing the word, where people were give, given an opportunity to minister the word, you know, uh, the re- part of the reason that I became a preacher was because uh, there were other contexts where I could learn to teach the word in the church. Most of those are gone now. So you don't have Sunday school. You don't, you know, you, you don't uh, small, you have small groups, but most of those tend to be social. So basically, you have one platform for one person who is a platform preacher and not many other opportunities for a larger scope of understanding the word collectively. That's a keen observation. Yeah, that there's the Sunday sermon and then many churches would have, yeah, groups that gather around the week and people are raised up and trained to lead people in conversations about that sermon, you know, the kind of the right. discuss, you know, you know, at, we do it at my church too. In fact, I just wrote the the discussion guide for it right before this call, so maybe I'm feeling the the conviction there. Yeah, I, I don't think that's a bad thing. Well, yeah, I mean, neither I, do I. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> but it's but it's know, it's not, the I'm it's not, the one main sermon, and then essentially it's a kind of the echoes of that sermon echo throughout uh, the week. Whereas maybe in, you know, even a couple of years ago, there'd be the, the Wednesday night study. And then even right, before that, it'd right, be the, the Sunday evening right. church as well, too. And now it's... Well, what I realized, uh, let me, I'll tell you how I realized it. And, and you know, this, is, this, <laughs> this reflects the self-centeredness I was describing earlier. What I realized when, um, after I retired, you know, because I, I, I kind of had this vision of what my, my posts professorial life would be like, you know, and I realized that in there was no place for me in the church, because, you know, I there wasn't really Sunday school context where I could teach. The pastor didn't really want competition. You know, there were there, there wasn't there wasn't really a context for me to preach on any regular basis. And uh, so that that first I was first it was sort of this personal struggle, like wow, you know, where do I fit in? Where do I fit in at church anymore? And then it dawned on me that in this environment. I would never have been drawn into a ministry of preaching because I would not have had the opportunity to learn all the basic skills that were needed that eventually brought me into that ministry. So, and then when I looked around, I realized that's why when you look at churches, one of the things they're always grumbling about is, you know, we don't have enough, the way they would put, we don't have workers, we don't have enough workers, you know, well, what they what they're really looking for are people to support their program programmatic agendas you know the, the what what they are doing uh in terms of actual human development uh, on the level of people called by god not really much of that I think going on, you know, so I, I, it made me wonder if I actually would have, if I was a, if I was a young person today, would I end up in the place that I would? I mean, I mean, God's sovereign and he would, you know, he would work it out, but it seems problematic to me. Yeah, that is a, that's often, you know, the emphasis of this podcast and of course our, our training ministry around this is kind of, yeah, upskilling and encouraging like younger and newer Bible teachers. You know, that's, yeah. that's why I asked the question about the first sermon, because kind of the target audience of this podcast is people that are just kind of be- beginning, but to hear it on the, on the, 
no offense, on, on the other end of things, you know, with the, for the, the older gifted and experienced uh, preacher with little to no venues in most churches, because again, it's all kind of targeted towards the main preacher doing, right. doing a good job on Sunday. And that's it. Yeah. And I'm not saying, I, you know, I think a person could listening and say, well, you know, your problem is you're going to those big churches. I'm not. I'm talking about normal sized churches, you know, so and, and I think what you're describing, you know, that's uh, I, I was very encouraged to learn about your ministry in that way, because I think that in a way that, that you kind of have to do, that's what you have to do. Churches have to be intentional about raising up the next generation of teachers and preachers. I understand that. There are Bible colleges and seminaries, although if you've paid any attention to what's happening in those venues, they are, it's getting harder and harder for them to survive. You know, that's bad news for somebody who wants to be a career professor. I think it's good news in the, for the life of the church if the church reclaims the mantle of being the ones who train, you know, expositors and teachers. But there are very few churches that are really doing that, that, that I can see, you know, there are a couple of really large ones and, and they usually have some figurehead uh, preacher there. So they've got their own, you know, they have got their own structures, but I'd say the average church is really not even thinking about it. And part of what caused it before was you, you had some of those sort of lower level, I, I hate to describe it that way, it's not really true. They're more foundational, those more foundational ministries of teaching that needed people to learn how to teach. And so structures built up around them. But uh, now I just, I think the church maybe has to take it on. Pastors need to say, you know, uh, how am I going to make sure there's another generation of preachers and teachers? And then, of course, you say, well, if I'm going to train them, I have to, they have to be able to practice somewhere. Where are they going to practice? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, and with, with us, with Expositors Collective, yeah, we're kind of a, you know, somewhat parachurch, you know, training ministry. But, the, yeah, there's got to be that other half of it, like what you just said. I don't want to, yeah. I don't want this to be like a side uh, or an unnecessary, unintended consequence where, you know, we, we roll into town, you know, we'll be in Indianapolis later on. And then at the end of it, then there's a bunch of people in Indianapolis that are kind of frustrated because it's like, well, now I, I can do this, but I got no opportunities to do so. I know that some, you know, I, I can hear, I can hear the voice of the evangelists out there saying, well, your, your problem is, you know, you're only trying to go where the word is already being preached. You know, there's always somebody who needs to hear. And I, I don't disagree with that. I do, the, you know, my earliest days, you know, I was preaching and I was preaching to disinterested junior hires. I was preaching in nursing homes where the audience was falling asleep, you know, and which was well, actually, great experience it was great preparation for congregational <laughs> preaching. But and, and I, I I know that's true. If if God has called you to preach, you can say go find a place to preach. There's there are always people who need to hear. But I do believe that the church has a responsibility both for equipping those who are going to engage in that ministry and providing a platform for the, those who are gifted in that way and being trained in that way to exercise their ministry. Yeah. Yep. 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 Well, uh, yeah. 
John, you're always welcome to come preach at my church. <laughs> I will clear clear my schedule and make room <laughs> for you. Okay. Uh, I don't even know where you are. Uh, where are you? I, I live in Cork, Ireland, so I'm pretty far away from you. Oh, wow. So, yeah. You pay pay the expenses. Nah, we'll, we'll discuss that after the call. <laughs> Listen, the pulpit's yours. Yeah. Uh, travel and accommodations on you. Um, hey, so that's something we could pray about. Hey, let's talk about prayer. So... Yeah. Uh, yeah, we've, we've talked about, I guess, some of the, like, the overarching, like, the, 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 infa- the infrastructure or rather the ecosystem of, of churches that maybe allow different preachers to preach or, or not. But I guess I'd like to ask you, like, what role do you believe that, like, that prayer has in the life of a preacher or even in the life of a, of a church as a whole? Like, what's, where's prayer in all of this? Well, somebody else, I think, has said prayer is breathing, that it's, it's central to spiritual life. And I guess this is where I have to pitch my new book when God is Allow silent. me to do it for you. So tell us about your new book, When God is Silent, Let the Bible Teach You to Pray, published by our good friends at Lexham Press. Yeah. Yeah. The reason I want to bring it up is because for years, for years, I said I would never write a book on prayer because I feel like I'm a complete amateur, even though I've been, a, I've been praying since before I was a Christian. I was a pastor. I was a Bible college professor. And I still feel like an amateur when it comes to prayer. But, but I also clearly understand that, that prayer is really at the heart of my relationship with Christ, that, that to remove prayer from the relationship would, would be to remove, like removing conversation from my relationship with my wife. So in terms of preaching, you know, the, one of the things I realized about prayer when I was preaching was how much energy we put into the act of preaching that we tend to associate prayer with the act of preaching. So we ask people to pray for us while we're preaching. You know, some churches will have this little prayer team that goes off somewhere during the sermon. And uh, there's this impression that, you know, the, the spirit descends in the act of preaching. And what I realized was that, well, yes, that's true. But the spirit must also engage when I'm preparing the sermon. So prayer is just as important as I'm going through this process, this sort of sometimes tedious process of constructing the sermon and organizing the thoughts. And even back before that, when I'm doing all the exegetical groundwork and I'm studying the passage and I'm trying to understand it, uh, then I realize like, I, I don't understand this passage or I, you know, or I'm too familiar with this passage. You know, one of actually one of the things that I really do when I'm trying to prepare a sermon is I, I read the passage until it disturbs me. You know, I, I read the passage until I find whatever there is in it that cuts me and makes me bleed. And, and I, I, I look for it to say, you know, this, what is it that God sees that I don't understand in this. Well, I have to, I have to cry out to God. So, and then even back before that, before I've opened the Bible, as I'm living out my life, my preaching comes out of the circumstances of my living, where I'm, where I am, I am struggling, where I am wrestling, wrestling with myself, wrestling with my circumstances, trying to move in the direction of being a a, a more of a, more a person of faith. So I'm praying then. So there's no point in all of that process where prayer isn't doesn't figure 
It's it's not a it's not just a formal like oh here's the moment when we're going to prayer we're we're going to pray we're going to pray during the sermon we're going to pray before the sermon we're going to pray in the study just as it is woven into my whole life experience it is the thread that goes through the whole sermon I don't know if that's too mm. vague for you but that's how I'd answer it yeah well, no it's you're not you're not isolating a certain a certain section in fact you know I kind of asked an open-ended question and I I was you know I was wondering if you're going to talk about the opening prayer before you begin or the conclusion prayer but you've gone so far beyond just to to describe it as kind of the matrix in which you know all of this comes out of so that preaching in one sense what you know what is preaching preaching is a conversation it is my conversation with the audience. Well, what am I talking about? Well, I'm talking about God's conversation with us because I'm talking about his word. Well, it's foolish then for me to think that I'm going to have a conversation with people about a conversation God has with us without a conversation with him, an extended conversation. And so so my praying in the context of the sermon is, you know, it's it's all through it. It's, it's a long conversation. It doesn't, it's not time bound. It's not like, yes, I have the, I have this period from this point to that point where I'm praying. <clears throat> it's all through the process. It's intermittent. There's a lot of complaining. There's, there, there are, there are moments of profound silence when I am sitting before the Lord stupefied because I don't really know why he said it the way he said it, <clears throat> or I don't know what it is that I'm supposed to say about it, or I'm in despair because I know what I'm going to say, but I'm not confident that it's going to impact the audience in the way that I want it to. It's, it's all of that. It's, you know, it's just as it is in its own way, just as dynamic and vibrant as any conversation you could have with another person. And then at the same time, it's completely unique because what I find is God doesn't talk back. He, he, he doesn't, but that, that's the amazing thing about prayer. It's really unlike any other kind of conversation you have. You are, because it lacks all the normal cues you look for in conversation that makes it meaningful. No facial expression, no tone of voice, no body language, no, uh, like we're having back and forth, none of that. I primarily speak to God and then if I'm the only way he speaks back to me, and I'm, I'm not saying that he, I know there are people who will say, well, God speaks today. I don't, I don't disagree with the fact that, that, that God does that, that people have had that experience. I have never had that experience in the sense of God's never spoken to me audibly, that what I understand from him has come from the scriptures so that when I'm coming to the sermon, I'm, I am coming to it with where the feedback comes from this extended conversation that God has had with me through his word now, you know, over decades, several, you know, many decades, but it's very rarely the case where it's like the kind of conversation I have with you, where I say something, you say something back, I say something, you say something back. It's far more subtle, far more frustrating, mm. I find, yeah. which is why yeah. I wrote the book. <laughs> yeah, and I've, I've, I've heard you speak on the Stranger in the House of God podcast, you know, talking about how prayer sometimes can be like an awkward conversation. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, yeah. thanks for even just kind of yeah giving us permission to, to reverently 
call it what it is sometimes, that it can be yeah. awkward. And it's vi- missing all those cues uh, right. that you said. And yet it also is like a lifeblood to us. It's just yes. different. It's different than that's well, that's what I found. I found, uh, you know, on the one hand, I found that I, here's a moment of transparency that may embarrass, but uh, I don't like prayer. I don't, I don't enjoy it. I don't because of it, because, because I am a, I'm a visual, you know, I'm a face-to-face communicator. I want to see, I'm going to look you in the eye. I want to see your facial expression and your body language. And I, I can't, I don't have that with God. It's terribly frustrating for me. I don't like, I'm uncomfortable with silence. I don't like it. And, and yet at the same time, when I look at my life, it's like, I am talking to God all the time. I'm having a running conversation with him. I am one of those people. I, I, my wife has a very disciplined prayer life. You know, she has a set time. She prays every day. She has a list. I'm not like that. I have a running conversation with God all day long at night. I, you know, I go to bed and I can't sleep because I'm, you know, I'm bringing up, I'm complaining to God usually, (laughs) you know, and uh, so on the one hand, I look at it, I say, well, I I feel awkward. I, I feel uncomfortable. I don't really, I certainly don't enjoy church prayer meetings, but, but I'm talking to God all the time. I, I am praying all the time. So I don't know. What does that say? I don't know. A bad Christian, I think is what it says. Uh, it seems like you're the, the best slash worst person to write a book on. Yeah, prayer. well, that's what I decided. That's honestly what I decided. Yeah. I, I, I As I said uh, earlier, I... I Maybe I didn't say it. I think I said it that uh, I, for years, I told myself I would never write a book on prayer because I feel like I'm such an amateur. And then I thought about it and I thought, you know, the problem is most of the people who are writing books about prayer make two assumptions about the reader. They either assume that I don't want to pray or I don't know how to pray. And neither of those is true. It was refreshing to, for me to read C.S. Lewis in his uh, uh, letters to Malcolm, where he's talking about prayer, where he says the same thing. That he found that books on prayer don't really help him because the writers make the wrong assumptions. So it occurred to me, like, well, actually, maybe what we need is a book about prayer written by an amateur at prayer, somebody who doesn't Hmm. feel like they really have it all together. Hmm. Yeah. And yeah, amateur, like, doesn't amateur mean like someone who does it because they love it? Yes, that's great. Yeah, amote. Yeah, and amateur. You know, um, yeah. so etymologically, anyway, it's like there's a professional who does it because they're paid for. An amateur, right. I do it for the love of it. So, right. Yeah, there's that. And then also, I preached about prayer maybe two weeks ago. Uh, I, I mentioned this to you earlier on before we hit record. But yeah, we're doing kind of a a sermon series on the spiritual disciplines. And as we approached prayer, I did so. You know very carefully, very, I was pretty nervous about that because this might even go back to what you're saying earlier on about like prophetic preaching versus priestly preaching. I really felt quite priestly knowing that, that the church that I'm a pastor of, it's full of people who know how to pray, who want to pray, and they all just feel like they don't pray enough, you know, and you got to be really careful given kind of a raw, raw sermon about the, the need for prayer because Everyone agrees and everyone feels kind of crummy already. Yes. And yes. so I, I, I spent a, little, a while kind of crafting the right kind of introduction to the sermon, you know. And so I kind of said, like, I, I kind of started off with the question, like, you know, who, raise your hand 
if you think you pray too much, and of course nobody, <laughs> uh, raise your hand if you think you pray just the right amount, and you know no, and then raise your hand if you don't think you pray enough. And I raised my hand, and everyone else did as well. And it's like, hey, listen, we're we're in this together. We'd like to get better at it. Let's just talk about this for a while. And so I I, I felt, I guess, I, I didn't use this language, but. Uh, you know, that's probably me at my best, like in this priestly manner of Yeah, that's of exactly. And that's exactly what I'm talking about, where you're looking at it through the lens of the audience in a, in a sympathetic way. You're, you, you are identifying with their struggle. And therefore, even if you are exhorting them or rebuking them, you are, you are coming at it from the perspective of one who's sympathetic toward the struggle. Because honestly, you, most of us share it. You, we are very rarely preaching to an audience who, that we have surpassed, you know, I, I, I think, you know, we are, we are all of us wrestling with most of the same issues that the, the, that our audience is wrestling with to some, to varying degree, you know, I'm having committed every sin they've committed, but, but when you look at the way Jesus defines sin, when he traces it down to its root, you know, I'm, that's another issue that we, you know, it's worth talking about is how we because we are, we tend to be so concrete it's easy to position ourselves outside of the struggle you know because i'm preaching to you about a concrete problem that i don't have and you need to get it together you need to get your act together and you know really love jesus the way i do but if you begin to trace the root of that sin you will find it in your heart somewhere in some other form so that's that's a perfect what you're describing is a great example of what i mean by priestly well, I only did it once, John. I'm not that good at it. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, do it again. <laughs> do it again. <laughs> well, but I did do it once, so I'm making progress. Well, kind of as the, the last question, we always end these conversations with like asking you, like, how do you want to get get better? I know that your opportunities to preach are not as regular as, as they used to, but the next time you preach, how do you want to, to improve? Well, I don't think I can. I think I've reached the pinnacle. I, uh, I think... <laughs> You know, in terms of the in terms of the way that I preach, I, you know, I, what I find is the longer I preach, I all the struggles are still basic. You know, there's there's still the basic struggles. I you know, I want to I want to preach sympathetically. I want to preach the truth of the text. So I want to understand the text. I want to preach in a way that's true to my own heart. You know, I don't want to be a uh, just posturing, which I think is very easy to do. That's uh, one of the great traps of a preaching ministry is that we put ourselves on display and it's so easy to preach. We have to preach actually beyond our experience frequently. We're being called to do that because the text demands it. So how, how do I preach truthfully with appropriate level of disclosure without, uh, you know, ruining my credibility, which apparently you said I did at the beginning of the podcast, you know, right, right, where you say, say too much about your weakness. Um, that's a, that's, you know, kind of a razor's edge, isn't it, you know? Um, so, you know, it's all the basic stuff. Every time I preach, it's like starting over in some way. I always forget how hard it is, um, particularly, you know, when you're starting from the text. It's always the same struggle. It always feels like it's never going to come together I'm, I, or there's too much here. And then somehow by the end of it, there's something there that, you know, hopefully I feel good about. 
Yeah. Well, thanks for yeah letting us in on that. And, and again, you have like written the book on preaching and you've edited another book on preaching, editing the, the, the Moody Handbook on Preaching. So like uh, you're someone who has taught many people many things uh, regarding this this craft or this calling. But um, thank you for your openness about your st- it's still an ongoing process, even even for you. And that kind of gives... Yeah, it doesn't get any better. I, I don't think it gets any easier. Uh, that's what I. That's what I find. I don't. I don't in my life. I don't find that it gets any easier. And if anything, it gets harder because the the existential questions I wrestle with get harder. You know, when I was younger, when I was a young preacher, I had all the answers. I, you know, I was I was far more confident as a preacher when I was young. Uh, than I am now. I'm much less confident. I have much more uh, fear and trembling than uh, was true before. And it has nothing to do with style. <laughs> it's, it's all, it's all God, you know, it's all wrestling with God. Yeah. Okay. Well, kind of on that real downer of a, of a note. Um, no, I, I don't think, no, yeah. no, don't take it that way. It's, it should not be, it should not be a downer. Yeah. You know, I think because if it, if it, how else can you stay interested in it for the rest of your life? If you're going to preach it till you die, you know, once you've got it licked and it's just formula, it's just dead then it's dull. So I, you know, we preach best out of the struggle, our struggle with the text and the struggle of our own lives and struggle with the congregation, struggle with preaching with the congregation. Yeah. So, yeah. 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 Well, Hey, well, John, on that note, maybe would you end out our time together? Would you, would you pray for, Sure. You know, those preachers that are, you know, this Sunday is coming, they're working on their thing. Yeah. Maybe they have a message against the congregation to help us to be priestly and yeah. be for and be with the congregation. Let's pray. Father, I'm grateful for all of those who may be listening, who are laboring with your word, laboring in the midst of the congregation. And I want to ask that you would pour out your spirit on their hearts, in their lives, open the truth of the text to them, and give them the grace and the energy to bear with the struggle so that by the time they're finished, it will be a word from you reflected through their personality and their experience. And it will speak to the heart of those who hear. In Jesus' name, amen. Ah, all right. Amen. Amen. Uh, thank you, John. Really, really enjoyed that. There's going to be links to um, that Scott Erickson interview that I referenced, as well as uh, Joe Thorne and some other content that we've put out over the years about finding our own voice or leaning into the power of prayer. We're coming up on close to 300 episodes, and so there's quite a back catalog I've been hearing from people that have been journeying through the the back catalog and they keep on finding these gems. And I want to encourage you to check out the show notes of this episode and all of them, because I do try to kind of like cross reference or hyperlink older episodes that we've done that might connect with some of the themes of this current one. All right. Well, anyway, I hope that this episode and our upcoming training events in Indianapolis and all that we do at Expositors Collective help you to grow in your personal study and public proclamation of God's word. This podcast is a part of CGN Media, a podcast network that points to Christ. 
We are supported by listeners like you. To help us create more great shows, visit cgnmedia.org support.